Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Now the story about the strange journey of a word that's popular in far-right corners of the Internet. The word boogaloo. NPR's Hannah Alam tells us more. In 1965, this song by Tom and Jerio was a hit. It sold a million records. It also introduced America to a new word, boogaloo. Boogaloo emerged as a mashup of Black and Latin American influences. Some 50 years later, the word is still part of American pop culture, but with a very different meaning. It once represented a fusion of people and cultures, now it refers to their coming apart, civil war, in some quarters, a race war. Right. All right, so we're hot, we're live. We're talking boogaloo <laughs> tactics right now. Boogaloo. How did the word end up on the YouTube channels of armed and angry white guys? Boogaloo began as a sound and a dance. It bounced around from New York, Spanish Harlem to R&B artists in Chicago and other cities. James Brown brought it to new audiences. Boogaloo is probably one of the hardest dances in the world. I used to get dizzy doing it. Over the decades, the word came in and out of use. But it wasn't until 1984 that Boogaloo, or at least the way we think of it now, had its defining moment, thanks to a movie. Actually, the sequel to a movie about breakdancing. Electric Boogaloo, the ultimate show. Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, was a dud. It was so bad, it became a cult classic. The title has evolved into a meme, a sarcastic way to describe any unwanted sequel. And not just for movies. You now hear it in politics and sports. Most importantly, for the spread of the meme, it took root among gamers. Hey folks, welcome back to Sparring Gaming, and welcome back to Patrol Memes 2, Electric Boogaloo. Today, Boogaloo has seeped out of the gaming community and found fertile ground in militant fringe movements. That includes anarchists and others on the far left. But it's especially popular among right-wing militias and self-described patriot groups. In dozens of YouTube videos, they promise armed rebellion if the government tries to take their guns. A civil war, or Civil War II, Electric Boogaloo. So many people are saying that the Boogaloo is about to kick off in Virginia. When the Boogaloo happens, these are the people that you're going to have to watch out for. Do not think for one second that there aren't people that would love to see this thing to get started, that would love to see this Boogaloo start rolling. Personally, I do not want to see that. I don't want it to come to that. The same fun word, a chilling new context. And that's what makes it, I think, particularly insidious, is the use 
and co-opting of, you know, pop culture in order to make extremist points. That's Warren Siegel of the Anti-Defamation League. The ADL just released a report about the spread of Boogaloo. With far-right violence on the rise, Siegel says, it's time to look closer at how extremists use pop culture to communicate. It helps the message spread. It helps people maybe who are um, sort of on the margins want to explore. And so it's really weaponizing language as a way to try to reach and recruit people into the movement. YouTube videos with snarky Boogaloo titles often include advice on firearms and tactics. For a subset of the far right, the fringe of the fringe, civil war isn't enough. They're spoiling for a race war. Decades later, Boogaloo is no longer about music, but about menace. A word coined by black and brown people, now used by some who envision a country without them. Hannah Alam, NPR News, Washington. White supremacy is the sickness. Wacky. Just ridiculous. Got me again. Microphone was not connected. Say so again. So I did our introduction. Cows, we're here. Our first program. One of two. We'll be right back. Our broadcast uh, with our journalist and writer in Brazil. In the meantime, glad I found that before we got too far into it. In the meantime, uh, our guest for program number one, we have been talking about all the protests that have been going down over the past two months, really. Some of them started as soon as, you know, the whole lockdown and everything began in the States back in March. Uh, They've had the protests in South Carolina, California, a number of different locations. Uh, specifically with that term boogaloo. Uh, If you check online, a number of reports, they just had uh, a white man who was arrested. He said he was a member of the boogaloo boys. He had firearms, weapons. He was plotting to kill enforcement officials. Uh, The protests have been widespread. The use of the term boogaloo within all of this has been pretty widespread. I thought it would be grand uh, to examine all of this within the context of white supremacy and how uh, certain racists are using this health crisis, global health crisis, uh, to try to propagate, spread white supremacy racism. Uh, Our guest for the program, uh, he is a sociologist at Chapman University in California. They were protesting the closure of the beaches there. They were very upset with Governor Newsom, lots of folks uh, throughout the state. Uh, In addition uh, to doing his teaching work down at Chapman University, uh, he is a member of the National Consortium in Studies of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Start, which is a university-based research center committed to the scientific study of the causes and consequences of terrorism in the United States and around the world. Additionally, he co-authored American Swastika Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate. Thought it would be grand to get some of his expertise on what is going down. Uh, Joining us live, our guest, Dr. Peter Simi. Dr. Simi, you can hear me okay? Yes, I can. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for your patience. I was doing my intro and didn't realize my little cord had been unplugged, but glad we worked it all out. So glad to have you with us this Tuesday afternoon Uh, for folks who I'm sure this is probably some of them their first time hearing about you and the work that you do. Uh, Anything briefly you would like to share with us uh, just before we hop into more details about what's going down with the Boogaloo, the protesters? Yeah, just briefly, you know, I've been studying um, right-wing extremism and white supremacist movement um, in particular for over 20 years, nearly 25 years. Uh, started shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing, which prior to 9-11 was um, 
the largest act of domestic terrorism in our country's history, uh, as far as number of fatalities. Uh, so um, it's an issue that I've been following closely and have spent a lot of time with active members of these types of groups trying to understand how people come to embrace that worldview and uh, organize their lives to a large extent around these kind of extreme kind of hatred, uh, forms of hatred, basically. Okay. You actually got one of the questions I was going to ask uh, in terms of how you got interested in all of this. You said, you did you start examining these so-called hate groups, extremist groups? Uh, was it motivated by Timothy McVeigh and his bombing in Oklahoma City, 1995? Is that what you shared? That, that was one factor. Yeah, that was one factor. Uh, I was just starting grad school uh, shortly after the Oklahoma City bombing, and so that uh, definitely played a role. Um, uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I went to high school in Portland, Oregon, and there was an individual, uh, Morgana Surah, who had um, immigrated to the United States from um, Ethiopia and um, was raising his family, going to school in, in Portland, Oregon. He was beaten to death uh, by three local racist skinheads. And that also had a major impact in terms of the perpetrators were much older than I was um, at the time and, you know, wanting to understand uh, how they could have done, you know, essentially killed them primarily because of the color of skin. So it was a traffic altercation that, you know, escalated. And ultimately one of the racist skinheads took a baseball bat from the car that they were driving and um, fractured his skull. So uh, that had a major impact as well. And, and just growing up and observing firsthand uh, different types of racism and, and not really understanding it and wanting to then look at how it uh, can take, you know, different forms, including, you know, kind of organized extreme forms like you see with groups like the Ku Klux Klan and, and uh, neo-Nazis and, and other types of extremist groups like that. Right on, right on. Much obliged for the detail. We read, uh, I was reading uh, American Swastika, and you mentioned uh, the influence of William Pierce's Turner Diaries, uh, which was a big influence on Timothy McVeigh. We read that on our book club. Folks, if you have a little downtime, you might want to check out. Uh, it's, I don't know if they mentioned Boogaloo, but it's close. You might get a better perspective on the term Boogaloo if you check out Turner Diaries. Uh, Dr. Simi, uh, you are a white man. Is that correct? I am. Right on. Uh, this program, context of white supremacy. Uh, I use the term white supremacy and the term racism. I use them as synonyms. And I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows. A global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? It's a powerful definition. Uh, I think it captures it well. Um, I do think such a system exists, which is part of, you know, largely why I wanted to spend the time that I spent trying to understand that system and um, try and play a small part in, you know, figuring out ways of trying to interrupt that system, prevent the system, at least at, at an individual level, from taking hold. But um, you know, trying to think about ways that we can 
change it in a more macro level as well, which is obviously a difficult, uh, <laughs> a difficult uh, challenge that we face, um, but uh, but nonetheless a worthy one. Okay. We'll try and see if we can cover as much as possible in the time that you have. And this is one of the few times we actually have a time imperative since we have a second program. So listeners, nobody can lollygag. We'll all have to be efficient to try to maximize our time with Dr. Simi. Uh, there is a quote. Uh, we've had white guests on the program for a long time. I always enjoy asking them about this quote uh, to kind of see what they think. Uh, there was a quote written uh, and one of the conclusions I've come to is one of the ways that white supremacy racism is maintained strengthened really uh, is by people being inaccurate frequently it's white people lying deliberately being inaccurate about racism white supremacy often it's non-white people uh, giving out inaccurate information that gets promoted by white people but lots of inaccuracies in talking about this problem Uh, but this was in a major publication uh, where a non-white author um, best-selling non-white author no less He was writing this piece on racism and he said white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism but rarely are they pained enough. I stopped after reading that sentence, the first portion of it before we get to the rest after the comma. White people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism someone who studies this topic you're a white man yourself you've been around white people for some time in your opinion do a significant number of individuals who classify themselves as white in your opinion are they since often often that was include are they often sincerely and greatly pained by racism in your opinion unfortunately that's not been my experience um I um, started noticing this as a child um, that um, that was quite quite not the case. Um, and um, while it's you know it's my individual opinion based on my you know subjective experiences, and I don't claim that this is you know it's hard to always you know, it's always hard to do it's always difficult to generalize about groups, but that's not been my experience. Quite the opposite, and that's part of a major part of the problem is that. So much of racism, A, is of benefit to people. They benefit from it directly, right? So, of course, you have this term white privilege. Uh, but but also, um, it's often silenced or denied or ignored. Um, and there's real kind of, I think, a collective amnesia that afflicts uh, white people where they just don't see things that are overtly uh, and painfully, obviously racist and, and, and harmful. And it's, it's almost like it's invisible. And I think sometimes that's intentional and sometimes there may be other kinds of like unconscious aspects to it. But, um, I know I, that the, the statement that you read just is not consistent with my experiences. Much obliged, Dr. Simi. I've said for some years, that report came out uh, a few years back. I've said since I read it the first time, that is not true. That would be another example I point out when things like that get published, big time publications about racism and they're not accurate. We've asked a lot of white people. I think we're a little bit below 50 percent, but we've had a lot of white people over the years who have admitted. No, I don't think that's true. Uh, in fact, if it were true, maybe we wouldn't have a system of racism. We wouldn't have to be here talking about the boogaloo and all the rest of this. But fair point. 
Uh, yeah. I, before we get to the rest of all of this, just with the virus and everything. So you are in California. Uh, are you all still under Governor Newsom's stay at home order or has that been relaxed any at all? The, he is, he's kind of kind of got a county by county plan based on certain um, standards criteria that they've developed regarding number of hospitalizations and um, uh, just disease uh, new cases. Um, so I think we actually have a number of counties in Northern California where the population is not nearly as dense that actually have already pretty much opened back up, you know, in, in some form or another. Uh, and then other counties, uh, as they meet these standards, will be opening up. They, I think he just released a statement yesterday that indicated they're planning on restaurants opening in, in the near future in um more and more counties and athletic events without audiences uh, moving forward in the near future. Hmm. Okay. Is your county up and running or are you all still shut down? We, we're still uh, primarily uh, shut down. They've opened the beaches. I'm in Orange County, just south of L.A. County, so halfway between L.A. and San Diego. And they have just recently um, opened up all the beaches, including the parking, which was closed until, I think, yesterday, the first day they opened the parking. Okay. Okay. And for folks who they have been protesting uh, in California as well, they protested the beaches and uh, you've seen some of this in your area. Yes or no? Yes. uh, Huntington beach um, had a, has had multiple protests, including uh, one that had several thousand reportedly attend. Wow. Weeks back. Uh, But um, yeah, um, we've had, you know, protests, we've had other instances of um, kind of, insubordination restaurants opening when they weren't supposed to one in San Clemente, another beach town. Um, so yeah, there's been quite a bit of pushback in, uh, California, Southern California, much more than Northern, uh, like the Bay area. Okay. Double check in just to make sure. Cause some of the folks who participated in the broadcast are not convinced. So have you seen anything in news outlets or reports that's given you any reason to doubt, uh, that there is a, such a thing as the coronavirus or any of what's been stated thus far, any reason to doubt what's been reported? Uh, to doubt the pandemic, uh, that the virus exists or anything about the numbers in terms oh. of the deaths or the rates of cases, anything to doubt those numbers that have been presented thus far? Um, not, uh, no, no, I, I, uh, feel like it's, um, if anything, I would assume, I mean, deaths are, I would think are fairly accurate. There may be some, some, you know, um, plus or minus there in terms of the deaths. I would think the cases just overall, though, are probably underreported, if anything, because of the lack of testing. You know, we, we still are not testing at a very high rate, despite our president's uh, claim. Mm. Four more years. Okay. Got my virus questions <laughs> in. Uh, number for folks. Right. If you all have questions, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943. Pound press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, Doctor Simi is someone who studies uh, extremist groups, hate groups, so-called white supremacist groups. When these the protesters, in terms of the folks that were out at the Huntington Beach and the folks that were out protesting in Michigan, Governor Whitmore, and lots of these different locations, uh, when it began to converge that, oh, wow, it looks like some of these folks may or may not be upset about the restrictions, but they also seem to be promoting hate 
group white supremacist agendas as well. Uh, when did you start seeing those converge? Were you surprised or did you think, oh, yeah, this would be a great opportunity for them? Well, I think before the protests started seeing it online, you know, started seeing um, extremist groups, white supremacist groups in particular, really trying to take advantage, use the the pandemic as an opportunity. Um, some were, you know, saying basically, look, this is what you get when you allow open borders and have immigration. You've got a foreign invasion and you're going to have these kind of diseases. And, um, you know, some were celebrating it kind of in apocalyptic terms that you don't want to, this will be helpful in terms of bringing about a collapse of the system. Some were talking about how do we weaponize it, you know, and spread it to target populations, um, African-Americans, Jewish people, so forth. Um, so you saw that, you know, that kind of chatter, you know, really quickly online. Of course, a really sp- substantial spike in anti-Asian um, hatred, uh, given the association between Asians and the virus, again, helped by our president's words. Um you saw anti-Semitic references start to, to pop up right away in terms of them being behind this kind of international Jewish conspiracy about being behind the, the pandemic. Uh, and then you got had others on the other end of the spectrum that were denying the pandemic and saying, you know, this is, is exaggerated kind of pandemic denial, uh, um, kind of conspiracy theories and so forth. So all of these things are happening online prior to the, the protests starting. And then at the protests start, you know, it's pretty um, clear that there's an element of folks at these protests. And, and it ranges in terms of who's involved uh, on the far right. You have some that are much more kind of uh, anti-government extremists. Uh, and then you have others that are much more kind of white supremacists. And, of course, there's quite a bit of overlap between those two. So it's kind of unclear at times whether, you know, which element they fit into you have these Q, you know, the, the Q on folks that are um, talking about, you know, Trump taking on the deep state and, and are very um, kind of uh, promoting this conspiracy theory. Uh, so you, you have all these different elements that kind of fall into different aspects of far right extremism that are, you know, present at the protests. And, and I, you know, I think there are folks, as you said, that are there protesting. They have concerns, whether it's economic or otherwise. And, um, you know, they're mixed in as well. And so it's hard to say, you know, how many who show up to the protests are showing up because of those concerns that, you know, economic fears and so forth. And versus the folks that are showing up to push an agenda, right? They're using this as an opportunity to craft a narrative that is um, helpful for them in terms of whatever cause it is that they identify with few things I wanted to make sure I parsed out from there. Um, you sure. said you were seeing uh, some of these, uh, the racist rhetoric online about the virus and how do we weaponize it? You were saying you were seeing some of this online before the protests even started very early on, presumably right middle of March or so when they started to get serious about uh, the virus being in the States. Um, the portion about, Ooh, let's take advantage. How do we weaponize how maybe we can spread COVID-19 to, to black people, other non-white people. Uh, I've seen a few of those reports. I think the Young Turks talked about that. I think the FBI even released a report about that. It was a number. Yeah. Uh, thank you. It was a number of different news outlets that said something about that. But I haven't seen that. Like out of all the conspiracies, right? Like it's 5G. Uh, there is no virus. This is a global meltdown and economic sh- out of all the conspiracies 
that one is right there like the FBI said hey it looks like racists are saying let's give this to black people that one I have not heard as much attention about as all and in the UK this weekend they reported uh, Belly Mohinga I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly Belly Mohinga black female she was an essential worker uh, and a white person coughed on her and said he had the virus he coughed on her and spat on her too and then she died uh, like a week later they're supposed to be investigating it uh, I think that's something that should get a lot more attention. Um, just can I get your response to that, Dr. Simi? Yeah, I agree. It should. And, you know, it's unfortunate that it's kind of consistent with a much longer history of not giving these these types of issues the attention they deserve um, and downplaying uh, this type of, you know, terrorism, right? Um, it, it, it's it's terrorism and this kind of white terrorism oftentimes, you know, we, we've seen in the last couple of years, it start to get a little bit more tension, but look what it's taken, you know, it's taken El Paso. It took, you know, uh, Charleston, uh, South Carolina, it took Pittsburgh, you know, it took, you know, uh, New Zealand, it took, um, you know, the, a string of incidents in close uh, proximity to each other where white supremacists were committing these kind of terror attacks. Um, it took that, you know, kind of cluster for it to get a, a more attention. But, you know, these kind of incidents, obviously, um, you know, are very uh, common throughout our history um, and, and all over the country. And oftentimes it, it, they're met with silence, right? They're not met with um, the kind of uh, attention and scrutiny that they should be met with. Agreed. Uh, something I think should be thought about, maybe even globally, because like I said, the Belly Mohinga, that didn't happen here. That was in the United Kingdom. Um, the other portion, or even before I move off that, have you do the research you've been looking online? Have you seen reports of black people that are upset about racism, mad at white people, uh, reverse racist saying, hey, we're upset about this. If you get the, the virus, see if you can give it to white people. If you're an essential worker, go, you know, see if you can breathe on their door handle or what have you. If you deliver packages, have you seen anything like that? You know, I mean, I can't say that I have. That doesn't that doesn't mean it's not happening, but that's just not been something um, yeah, in part because of what I'm focusing on. So, I haven't seen that myself. Just checking for you know, <laughs> investigating. <laughs> um, I, thought, I thought that might have been a good question. For sure, for sure. Just ask. Don't want to be presumptuous. Um, <laughs> in terms of even the protests, mo. I think I've, I haven't seen them all. It's been very rare for me to see a black person at any of these protests. I am sure. There are some black. I know there are black business owners, black workers who have sure. been furloughed, uh, fired outright, weren't able to get unemployment, super scared about losing their housing or losing their business or both, uh, whatever it might be. Children. I know that has to be the case. Non-white people, too. I feel like at these protests, I have not seen non-white people at all. It has been ex- almost exclusively white people, no matter where they have been. Have you seen non-white people at these protests? been very white i mean that's that's for sure um it's been very white something about like when you were talking about the overlap like sometimes when you go out and you look and you know sometimes the people have a sign that say COVID's a lie sometimes they have the don't tread on me sign sometimes they have the four more years sign. <laughs> like it can be hard to kind of pick yeah. out like why are you here exactly when i look and i see like well wait a minute there don't seem to be any non-white people here 
even though some of these people say they're upset about, you know, the, the shutdown and finances or the school closures, parents that are upset about that, certainly this would be something that would coalesce a lot of people, not just white people. When I look and it's just white people and then I start seeing the lynching effigies and the don't tread on me and the firearms, because I know if it was a lot of black people out with firearms, it would be a totally different response. Do you disagree? No, I don't at you know. um, It's um, again, it's this is borne out in terms of we see, um, you know, some of these extremist standoffs we've seen in recent years um, in Oregon, for instance, that take over the wildlife uh, refuge, or in um, southern Nevada with the uh, standoff at the Bundy Ranch. You know, when um, the the response is is, is quite different, um, and so um, no, I, I don't disagree at all. You mentioned the Bundys. I love the Bundys. Ammon Bundy, uh, folks, remember he was down uh, in, I think it was Arizona. He was protesting the Bureau of Land Management. Uh, he was upset. He had his grazing. He was stealing, robbing the federal government, didn't want to pay the, the grazing fees. And then they talked to him and he said, let me tell you what I've learned about the Negro. <laughs> With the rest of his, his commentary, his son, since you brought up Oregon, his son, uh, I forgot. Oh, it's one of the other Bundys. I forgot his name. Ammon Bundy. That's it. Ammon Bundy. His son in Oregon, he was one of the first people that I saw that came out and said, uh, we're upset about this. This is a violation of our constitutional rights to be telling us, you know, we have to stay in the house and we can't go anywhere. We can't operate our businesses and we want to offer our services for protection for anybody who wants to go out who says, hey, you're not going to keep me, you know, quarantined. I want to go out. We will offer protection. <laughs> what Same thing I just said. Number one, I cannot imagine if black people, if I said, hey, forget this, forget Governor Inslee. We we do, we are not. Uh, agreeing with the shutdown and if anybody else if you want to violate we will come out and provide armed protection i cannot imagine that being tolerated if black people decided to do that that's one two i gave another part like wow like you and your family have said some things that seem like what a white supremacist would say why are you stepping to the front lines and all this to offer armed protection to people who disagree with the shutdown orders uh what what's your way of trying to make logic of this Well, um, as far as um, the, uh, the the Bundys and their views on, in terms of the, um, I mean, well, first in terms of the point about you know you can imagine what would have happened in in Michigan had the folks that went after you know the governors with guns had they not had they been black right had they not been white you know, what would have happened in Michigan? You know, that's one of the questions you mentioned, you know. Um, the, yeah, you know, I mean, just, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, I mean, I, I hate to imagine that, that you know, how that would turn out. Um, I guess as far as, you know, the Bundys, uh, I'm not too surprised at uh, some of uh, what I'm hearing there. I mean, I think they're they're a good classic example of, how, you know, oftentimes they're looked at as purely just being anti-government, but they do have, you know, this racist aspect to uh, much of what they've uh, preached over the years and uh, a lot of their, their beliefs. And um, and now with, you know, COVID-19, uh, one of, uh, I can recall which one, but one of them has cited that it's linked to the, you know, an international Jewish conspiracy. And so there's an anti-Semitic component to uh, 
one of their explanations for, for COVID-19. So again, I, I just think it underscores a lot of times this anti-government uh, element has this white supremacist aspect to it that gets kind of ignored by, by folks when, when they look at it in terms of whether it's journalists or scholars or other observers in terms of uh, trying to understand or make sense out of out of that element. Hmm. I feel I feel like I did uh, hear a little bit more of that analysis. The white supremacist, like with the Bundys, the anti-government element when President Obama was there, like I felt like it, he was such a flagrant uh, figurehead for all of that. I feel like I did hear a little bit more of it then, but not as much now that, you know, four more years, yeah. President Trump is there. I don't. But I, I think it is important that that is still present, that a lot of these uh, individuals classified as white who are doing the complaining about the government, whether it's right now with the restrictions or even before all of this, that sometimes this can just be a veneer for racist white supremacist organizations do you think that's an accurate statement yeah no i i do i do i mean i don't say it's always the case i mean i think there are individuals groups that you know really are focused on the government and they don't you know that's just their singular focus and so it doesn't really cross over but but i think a lot of times there's there's in my experience in doing field work a lot of these kinds of individuals that define themselves say as constitutionalists is that when you sit down and talk to them after a while and they kind of get going, yeah, first all they're talking about is the Constitution and federal overreach and these things. But then you kind of get into it, and then before long they start talking about, again, the international Jew, or they start talking about how American society started falling apart after the Civil Rights Movement, you know, after schools were desegregated. You know, you start hearing those kind of things. It, take, it may take a while. But but you get there eventually, uh, in in many cases. Mm. I am not surprised, unfortunately. Dr. Uh, Peter Simi, sociologist, Chapman University in California. Uh, again, don't lollygag. If you have questions, 605-313-5164. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The term... Boogaloo, uh, I was stunned, I guess for many reasons, when I started seeing this term uh, being used and associated with these white supremacist organizations and uh, using the term as best I can understand it. You can let me know if I maybe I got it wrong, but as best I can understand Boogaloo, meaning this time when they think there's going to be some sort of major uh, chaos that will cause uh, the federal government to no longer work and there'll be some sort of anarchy, fighting, brawling. You might have to you know, kill someone to protect your toilet paper. Uh, that's what they kind of refer to all of this as. Is that is that do I have a correct understanding of the Boogaloo, how it's being used? Yeah, right on target. You the second civil war or race war, depending on you know which person you talk to. Gotcha. The system of white supremacy is war. I say that on the program all the time. Uh, what just? There's so many things. Number one, uh, just what are your thoughts on why that term would be used? The NPR segment they talked about pop culture and ways of normalizing, and yeah. I guess I mean that not not disagreeing. Just why? racist white supremacists if you saw the movie Breaking 2 or if you have a music connection 1960s 1970s Latin fusion James Brown all of that either way why would you latch on to a term that the very people you despise coined why would you latch on to that term 
to talk about your anarchy in time for shooting. Yeah, I think it ties into, you know, one of the things I've found is that uh, within these circles, they do have a strong sense of irony, and they have a very, uh, and you call it a sense of humor, but I mean, it's very disgusting, and typically involves lots of violent fantasies and so forth, but, but they do use joking uh, very prominently. Of course, they use that also partly as self-defense. They'll talk about, you know, say, um, you know, lynching uh, blacks, and then, then um, you know, use a disclaimer that it's just a joke. You know, I mean, they might have a you know, a website or a web forum where that's referenced or photos, even pictures. Uh, and then, but then they'll have a disclaimer saying it's just a joke. But point being is that they do have this kind of uh, taste for irony and they, they do like to latch on to, to pop culture as a way to make references. I, I'm reminded of a bumper sticker that I've also seen as a t-shirt that has an image of Klansmen in their full regalia with the white hood and white sheets. And in script, it says the original Boys in the Hood in reference to the movie Boys in the Hood with Larry Fishburne and Ice Cube from the early 90s that John Singleton made um, about South Central Los Angeles. Um, So that that always stuck with me because I thought it was an example of how they try and, you know, tap into pop culture and then kind of put a twist, their own twist on it. And so I would liken something like this along those lines. And, you know, you see this uh, time and time again in, in terms of how they try and um, connect to, to kind of mainstream pop culture. Uh, recognize the late John Singleton just passed away not too long ago. Uh, with, Do not know. Yeah. yeah and at a very young age, too, unfortunately. With. Yeah. With. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. With. Uh, latching on to these pop culture turns I thought that was so important uh, you said having this sense of, of irony sense of humor and and being funny uh, with all of this we talk about racist jokes on this program so frequently I think that's such an integral aspect of white supremacy racism uh, because in my view when you had you mentioned lynching one of them I try to ask white people when we've had them on the program matter of fact you've been around you study you talk about that in American swastika being around white supremacists and they do in all this work you've you've heard and or read seen a number of racist jokes yes um, yes regular basis well, can you can you remember one uh, one racist joke that you've heard read came across in your studies wow that's um, um, yeah, I've come across so many and none of them are particularly sticking um you got me um i I mean there's jokes about putting digging you know holes and bulldozing you know inward in um you know gas ovens for um you know anti-semitic jokes Uh, is they run the whole gambit um but there's not one that actually i could recite to you so i don't know what that says Hmm. That has been a pattern. We've had, like I said, we've been on the air for over 11 years. So we've had interviewed a number of white people over the years and we've had a number of white people who are professors and what have you. And a lot of them study racism and or we've just had white people who are racist. uh, Some of them who just said, you know, I grew up in Georgia or I grew up in Michigan and we told racist jokes all the time growing up. uh, Some literally we've had white people on the program who said, oh, yeah, I heard thousands of them growing up. And I said, oh, man, you know what does stick with me, though? 
I'm s- is, is from childhood. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing a racist nursery rhyme. Oh. I guess a joke, of course. I was walking through the jungle, and what did I see? 101, and were looking at me. And then it just kept going in, in, in the numbers and uh, some variants. Um, so that, 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 now that I remember hearing for the first time, I think I was 10 years old when I first heard that. That, that did stick with me, but all of, I've literally probably thousands. I've gone through thousands. I've either heard or read them online, um, you know, on the web forums and so forth. And we've even written about, you know, the use of racist humor. It, there's a section in, in our book, American Swastik, and we've written articles about it. But, yeah, I um, couldn't tell you one right off the top of my head. So, again, that fits the pattern. Consistently, we have white people on. They cannot remember a racist joke. Uh, and I study and love racist jokes myself. Uh, I can remember one talking President Obama. One was, uh, what do President Obama and an apple have in common? They both look mm, good hanging from me. a tree. Mm, there you go. And important and so many of them variably have that kind of content as far as just the it, it's almost hard to call that a joke but it's not it just is. because it's disgusting but because the it doesn't really have the substance of a joke even in my view it does in the context of white supremacy and it goes back to the question that i asked you at the beginning i try to ask all of our white guests are white people sincerely and greatly pained about racism? We had uh, Dr. Jim Fegan uh, on the program, Joe Fegan on the program. Uh, we talked about his book, uh, Two Faced Racism. And he also has a section in his book on racist jokes. And he has a number of, he gets his white students to write in their journals. And so they tell a number of different uh, racist jokes, squiggers and all the rest of it. Moon crickets. It's fascinating. One of the better books I've read. Uh, but when we talked to him about that. And I said, these jokes, number one, he said, these jokes, most of them are focused on black people. This is not uh, democratic and equally targeting all non-white people. No, that is not the case. These jokes invariably are focused on black people, particularly when we start talking violence and cracking someone over the head and lynchings and all that. Black people. Two, Mm -hmm. uh, he said, with these racist jokes, they're an important component of transmitting racist culture. Uh, in terms of values or lack thereof uh, in terms of how you're supposed to see black people, how you think of black people to have. And he said to have thousands of he's tens and thousands of these jokes. You can look online and they have pages. Of, sounds like you've done all that or go talk. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of these jokes to have all of that. He has a big section in his book on racist jokes for all of that. To me, it strongly suggests individuals classified as white enjoy practicing racism they enjoy violence against black people when you see those lynching photographs and you see mobs of white people and it's not just one of these photos or a dozen of these photos or a hundred of these photos you can't even count the number of photos they enjoy practicing racism that's why it's still that's the only logical conclusion i can come to am i making sense dr simi yeah i think that's one of the most important points that often gets missed is the the enjoyment of racism of white supremacy um it's um something that i've seen firsthand that it brings people some i mean obviously the sense of superiority is is pretty enticing and seductive but also just um 
the 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 camaraderie that you get with being part of an in group that has a strong out group that it can you know have these jokes about that it can uh suggest violence towards and commit violence against uh there's some very dark kind of enjoyment that comes along with that um you saw it in the images from charlottesville you know at the unite the right rally uh, back in 2017 especially at friday night where they're holding the 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 torches and um they, they really you can see it in their faces they enjoyed being you know together like that and talking about uh, blood and soil and, and, you know, doing their chants and then eventually, you know, attacking the people that were there uh, around the statue. So, yeah, I think that's a, a really critical point that often gets missed. Deliberately so, uh, in my opinion, it would, in my view, it would radically change many of our conversations about racism and what it means to be white. If it's not white people are ignorant, it's white people enjoy practicing Racism. Even I look at that. Yeah, term. I think the whole narrative about ignorance is is kind of misguided to a large extent because it yeah it suggests there's some kind of educational deficiency, which is why people are racist and why that people join these kind of groups. Uh, and so, if you just gave a more formal education, then that would kind of somehow address the problem. Uh, that's not no, what we find at all. Um, um, you know that um, the the idea of ignorance as that deficit misses the things that people get out of it. You know, that people are part of white supremacist groups or they practice it, you know, because they get, they get benefits, they get tangible benefits from it. Apparently joking about mistreating black people is one of those benefits. Uh, and I would even look at the term boogaloo and you can look online for people. I don't know. When I talked about this term uh, on the program this past weekend, it didn't seem like a lot of people had heard this term used in like the COVID-19 context. Um, but you can look online. Uh, you can look like on YouTube, a lot of, uh, it's kind of in the same vein as the preppers. You'll see some of the people that are talking about it in that context. Some of them were talking before the COVID-19 virus got started. Some of them are afterwards. You'll probably see some new ones that were posted today or this weekend. You can look in terms of news reports that are written, but it doesn't seem like the people that the white people that are talking about the boogaloo and maybe it's happening right now or coming soon. It's not like they're talking about this with sadness and, oh, this is terrible. And, you know, this. it seems like a lot of them are talking with, like, great anticipation. Like, oh, this is going to yeah, be very excited. Yes. Like, that, again, does not suggest that you are upset about this. Like, this is gleeful anticipation. Like, yes, mm -hmm. the boogaloo. I got my rifle ready and I'm doing my shot. They got people that have them doing rifle practice they got all these reports of the guns gun sale surges doing rifle practice and it's titled the boogaloo and they're going and it, and it even says in the video i'll post it it says in the video description i just posted that for giggles i missed that last part i'm sorry in the youtube video that was titled it had boogaloo that's the major part of the title when it's just a white person out taking uh shooting drills shooting practice they posted in the description that they just used the boogaloo and fighting for your toilet paper and everything that they just used that for laughs they just used that for giggles which again that's why i said it's going back to it is not in the spirit of oh we're so sad there's going to be a second civil war and all those people that die. that's not it at all it's Oh, this is glory. We have been looking forward to this. Get your rifle shined up. It's time to kill some people. Like, 
I j- just that mentality again. I think that's another one that doesn't get included. Looking forward to the opportunity to commit violence. Uh, can you speak to that with the gun sales? I guess if you could add that yeah. as well. Absolutely. Um, there's anticipation. There's excitement. Uh, there's um, you know a real sense of um, that this is um, something to look forward to. You know, the, that um, this is going to bring, um, in part because, you know, folks see the, you know, as this comes closer uh, and the conflict um, actually comes to fruition, that they're going to come out the better, right? They've got more guns. They've got, you know, um, you know, uh, they've got uh, things that are going to allow them to, to essentially be what, you know, they say victorious. Right. So, um, and, and, you know, in the aftermath of the conflict, they, they envision, um, you know, something that they would prefer a, a society, a social system that they would, you know, prefer more than what we have now. I had a question uh, with given the family, the situation that happened in North Carolina, some of the white protesters that were out. That was Mother's Day. <laughs> Can't emphasize enough. That was Mother's Day. They were out protesting. They didn't take that opportunity to say, hey, man, let's go support some of the florists. Uh, no, they've been hurting and out of business. Let's go find a white florist. No, 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 no. We want to go out and brandish firearms and scare black people. That's what we want to do for our Mother's Day 2020. Uh, the number for folks who have questions, 605-313-5164, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have a question for Dr. Simi. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. First hand that I see up. Uh, if you have a question for Dr. Simi, you should be with us. Retired firefighter in Florida. Line should be open. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, Gus. Greetings to the guests and uh, all of the uh, listeners. Uh, uh, I'm uh, the question that I have, uh, based on uh, what I've heard about your background, uh, is this: uh, being that, from my observations, uh, these uh, white vigilante groups, racist groups, are much more sophisticated uh, with the technology, especially that exists today. Uh, I've watched YouTube on a consistent basis for many years, and there's not a weapon that white people who do not wear uniforms, that say U.S. Army, Marines, they're just white people in itself, that has every weapon that uh, it, that the military has, except for I, I figure atomic bombs, they don't have those, and if they are, they're not they're not uh, relevant to uh, uh, this conflict that I'm about to ask you about. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, do you think that uh, within the next four years that uh, these groups can can uh, come to some sort of organized conflict with? local, state, and national uh, officials in this part of the world that is called the United States. And with the idea in mind of not winning, I don't know how to define that, but definitely to force uh, these 
powerful groups into negotiating with them? It's a great question. So, I mean, in some ways, that's the million-dollar question that uh, we need to be looking at as far as the you know, extent of imminent threat that we face with these groups in, in the near future. What we see with these groups, and they've been promoting this for decades, you can go back to the assassination of Medgar Evers by Byron Dama back in 63, I believe. Um, you know, he was a lone assassin, right? And that was something he was associated with the Klan group, associated with White Citizens Council, but he was acting, you know, individually. He committed that act of violence. And we've seen over the decades that kind of lone actor type of violence heavily promoted by, um, in, in the way of books, like uh, William Pierce's book, Hunter, which he wrote after the Turner Diaries, uh, in speeches, in various kinds of propaganda you find online, is that this, they call it, uh, you know, role of terrorism, or they call it uh, leaderless resistance, but it's just either one individual or a small group of people who commit acts of violence to try and bring the system down and to, uh, you know, attack what they call their racial enemies. So that type of violence is, is really quite widespread and has been for some time, and I expect that to continue, unfortunately. Um, the question is, is can it coalesce into a more organized front of sorts that would present an even bigger threat? One place to look would be what happens in 2020 with the presidential election. That, if um, Trump is not reelected, there's going to be a segment of white Americans who are going to view that as a prim primarily white Americans, um, maybe exclusively white Americans who will view that election, the results as illegitimate. And I don't, I not, certainly in my, you know, we had the 2000 election. There was a lot of controversy around that, but, but it was different. Um, I think this is going to be something we haven't seen before. If Trump's not reelected, of course, I'm not arguing for his reelection, but um, but if he's not reelected, the amount of anger, I think, that's going to coalesce potentially around what they will perceive as an illegitimate result, I think it's going to be substantial. And that's one area where we might see a, a more organized kind of coalescence of forces in terms of right-wing extremism that could potentially, um, you know, exert a greater threat than what we see with a, you know, a single individual or a you know, small group two three four people so that that's one place to look i would say in terms of the next you know really the next year what about uh if he's elected and the pandemic is still at a functional basis with the chaos that's going on right now i would figure within the next four years uh he would uh, he would still have to uh, well the uh, these different factions that I've mentioned about local, state, and national would still have to aggravate these organized groups of white people. Uh, I don't think I don't think right now they're collecting their weaponry for non-white people who are racially as black because uh, it's not it wouldn't be necessary. But uh, do you think, even with him being elected, and under the context that we're that people in this part of the world is at right now, uh, would this organized uh, organized uh, warfare could could uh, exist? 
Yeah, I mean, so I think his election, I mean, I, in, you know, unfortunately I see violence either way, no matter what the outcome is. Um, and I think it's the question of the tenor and the nature that the violence takes. Um, I think with his election, you, you get, you know, kind of a reinforcement of sorts for, you know, some segments of far-right extremism that then see, you know, that see him as, as their leader of sorts. Um, and so then his reelection becomes, you know, a substantial reinforcement of that. And that, that, and that emboldens some, you know, and so then you get that. And, you know, we just don't know what is going to happen over the next four years if he's reelected in terms of how he, you know, can, you know, how, how his presidency will unfold in a second term, how much more combative he's going to get. He's already done a lot of things to stoke, uh, violence in, in many different ways. Uh, and so is he going to be even more unhinged in, in a second term than the first term where he was, you know, he, he had to be, well, you know, I want to get reelected. And of course, we don't know what his plans are in the second term at the end of the second term either. And so those things, obviously, I think, are things to consider how that will galvanize folks and also help potentially coalesce uh, a segment of far-right extremism to take uh, more organized violent action. Yes, last but not least, have you witnessed the tinkering, as I have, with uh, white people who do not wear a a military uniform that associated with uh, what is called the United States, but yet they have tanks, I've seen tanks, cannons, uh, huge, uh, that you have to carry with two or three people, machine guns, Things that you normally don't see sold at gun stores. Uh, uh, have you seen the same things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have some, you know, segments of our population that are extremely heavily armed and have stockpiled massive amounts of weapons uh, that we're not, I don't think, fully even aware of, really. So yeah, we we, we and then again, this has been, you know, something that we've seen over time. Um, so obviously the weaponry gets more sophisticated over time as well. But uh, yeah, okay. which can easily fit into uh, surgical-like uh, uh, conflict uh, in this part of the world, yeah. including including helicopters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. That's it, Gus. Much obliged, retired. For sure. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. Again, don't lollygag because we have another guest uh, who is coming soon. So uh, the time that we have, Dr. Simi, get your hand up, star 61, if you have a question. Uh, I guess to uh, carrot back, no pigs. They had to kill all those pigs. Man, talking about that, messing up the uh, food supply. Anyway. Uh, carried back on retired firefighters point uh, about uh, individuals classified as white amassing arms tanks and all the rest of it because I've seen so many reports uh, across the country of uh, increases in gun sales and ammunition sales Uh, they talked about that too where they they already had the firearm they just want to make sure that they don't run out of rounds got more you know niggers to shoot I guess Medgar Evers and all the rest Um, what I think is important There was a situation in North Carolina on Mother's Day where 
a black family was out. They said they felt terrorized. Uh, armed white protesters, out, one with a rocket launcher, <laughs> to retired firefighters' point, uh, out protesting on Mother's Day in North Carolina, mad at Governor Cooper about the, the lockdown restrictions. Also in North Carolina, there was an armed mob that confronted a black attempted family at their residence. Went knocking on the door. Who are you? Where? Where? We're looking for this person. What are you doing? Do you know anything about it? Asking them all these questions and demanding to come in the house and all the rest of it. Like, whoa. And they said that it was an off-duty officer uh, who was present in this in this white mob. Presumably, at least one of these folks would be mobbed if you got an off-duty officer. Pretty seems like it would be uh, high, chan- high chances he might have a firearm, if not some of the other folks uh, who are there in the state of North Carolina. The family again said, we're terrorized. You know, what could have happened? You know, they could have killed my child. That's what the mom said and all the rest of it. We just did a a program here where I talked about my own experience. I'm in Seattle, Washington. Current residence where I'm at, I've been here for over a year. I just went to check the mailbox. I didn't have a crowbar, Dr. Semi, I promise. I had a key. I'm opening the mailbox just to get, and it's daylight. It's not 2 a.m., even though I don't think that's against the law to check your mail late at night. But it's the sun is out. It's Sunday afternoon, no less. Uh, and I'm checking the mail. I reach over to get out a few envelopes. It's quite a bit. I've been a little lazy and not checking the mail the past couple of days. All of a sudden, a white man in all black, he drives up in an SUV and he hops out. So what are you doing? Do you live around here? What's your name? And I'm a little baffled, like, whoa what is going on i don't know if he's armed he's wearing all black i don't know if he's an enforcement official like whoa i'm just trying to check the mail i don't say anything he continues what's your name what's going on where do you live at i close the mailbox back i promise with the key not a crowbar i close it back i take the envelopes and i look at him and i say call the police everything changes from there oh man I didn't mean anything. I didn't. I was just looking out for you. I, I'm just neighborhood safety. You know, we got crime and all the rest. He didn't come up. Hi, my name is Ted. How are you doing? Isn't this virus thing crazy? You live here? Oh, okay. Da, 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 da. He just hopped out immediately. What are you doing? Is that a crowbar? Are you stealing from the mailbox? I put that in context with those other events because I also felt terrorized uh, as a black person just trying to check my mailbox. And I feel the the same or the element, the thread that runs through all of these, the same thing with the boogaloo. This was not neighborly. I'm just concerned about the safety of everyone who lives here. We're all in this together. The tacky cliche. This wasn't that at all. This was hostility, violence and aggression. I think he might have been on. That's what I said. He was looking for a confrontation. That's the spirit that I see with all of this is that you have a lot of white people in an environment where they've almost bragged about the sale of guns who are saying that they're anxious, they're stressed, they believe in the virus or they don't, all of this anxiety, and I'm going to take it out on a black person and looking for opportunities to take it out on a black person. What are your thoughts, Dr. Simi? Yeah, I think this speaks to this kind of almost like a white prerogative to engage in this kind of behavior um an entitlement i guess you might say that whites are entitled to to um kind of see themselves as neighborhood protectors vigilantes um 
it, it, there's, and unfortunately deeply embedded, I think in, in kind of the collective conscience of sorts uh, for whites. I think this, this runs pretty deep. It sounds your well, what you described at the mailbox sounds eerily familiar to what we saw, you know, on video with this uh, young person in Georgia that was shot and killed by the father and son, um, you know, who thought they had a prerogative that they were entitled to be the, the neighborhood vigilantes and, uh, you know, take care of this person that they believed was up to no good. And so this is, um, again, I don't think this is a result of, you know, a deficit of education or ignorance. It, it goes back to, I think, what we talked about earlier in terms of, you know, people enjoying to be able to have that prerogative, you know, and um, deriving benefits from, from having that prerogative. I made a point of saying the entire interaction, or at least with my situation, the entire interaction changed. I didn't respond when he was interrogating me. I just said, call the police and everything changed. And I'm of the opinion, mm-hmm. if you see the uh, Mr. Arbery situation in Georgia, okay, you think he's a looter. Okay. Call the police. That's what, you know, you're supposed to do. I thought, okay, he's, we've got a nigra and he's out looting mailboxes. Call the police. You got your phone. You can take a picture. You can give him a great description. Even if he decides to take off, he's got a crowbar and he was running south. He's headed towards the space. I mean, you got it. Easy. That's what that's not what they're looking to do. They want the same thing with the killer of Trayvon Martin. He had even called the He did the correct thing and they told him that's it. Stop. We don't need to do anything else. Stop right there. No, I want a confrontation. I want the opportunity to be violent with a black person. That is the, and particularly black males. I want the opportunity, even the situation where Breonna Taylor was killed. I brought up the same logic. Dr. Tommy Curry used. They were going, unless I'm mistaken to serve a warrant on a black male when they went and did their Mm, so-called botched raid. And then, Oh, whoops, we shot a black looking for the opportunity. They even said, I think in one of the reports that they did a no knock raid. They don't even do that sort of tackiness with white people who does late night. No knock raids. That's the type of Fred Hampton. When you're looking to commit violence against black people, you want an opportunity to shoot. I just think that's really important that when you have an opportunity to call in for the people who are trained to deal with looters, the people who are paid to stop crime. No, 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 no. I don't want to do that. That spirit is very strong in individuals classified as white, particularly when they think the looter or the pretend looter, the pretend rapist is a black person. Oh man, let's get, did did you have a follow-up Dr. Simi? Yeah. Well, in that spirit, you know, historically has not been, you know, there have been sanctions, right? It's been allowed to occur. Um, People have been given a license whites have been given a license to do that. Um, and that, so that, you know, that plays a role as well in that, you know, that they're looking for the conflict and, and there's a good chance that, um, you know, they may not, uh, have to face any consequences. Darren Wilson, he's described, uh, he's Hulk Hogan. You can come out with all kinds of insane. Now you can just, Oh, I was stressed. You know, the, the virus, the Rona had me stressed and, you know, I thought he was going to take my toilet paper and, you know, oh yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, we can understand. Everybody's stressed. Always find a reason to justify killing a black person. Uh, let's see. The, with 
the Boogaloo, I did want to get one point because I told listeners, I said, man, this sounds kind of familiar. I don't remember it. Uh, I went back and I watched it. You talk about irony, quote unquote, the plot of Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo, is basically you have two black males. uh, They're dancers. That's part of the boogaloo when they all, you know, shake and gyrate. But these two black males are squabbling with each other for the attention of a white woman that neither of them get successfully. And they're like two kind of uh, broke, economically challenged uh, black males. And this white woman is like extravagantly wealthy. Like she has a butler and a mansion that's bigger than the whole black people's neighborhood. And these black, these two black guys live like in a shack, basically that looks like it would fall over if you had a good wind, but they literally like get into uh, almost fisticuffs with each other over the sexual attention of this white woman that neither of them get Uh, any, any thoughts to them picking this boogaloo from this movie with that as a plot? Well, with that as a plot line, that's very interesting because certainly there's maybe no other single issue that cuts to the core of the white supremacist mind, if you will, uh, the psyche, uh, than interracial romantic relationships and in particular black male, white female relationships. I mean, that is just at, at the core of what they are angered by and fear and resent and frustrated and all the emotions. Really, uh, it's certainly not the only issue, obviously, but but it is a very, very central one uh, that really galvanizes them. I mean, they have websites that track and monitor uh, interracial relationships, and and they make references to, uh, they they promote propaganda that suggests when white women engage in these relationships, they inevitably are physically beaten, so they'll have, you know, photos of a white woman who's been uh, battered and say this is you know kind of your uh, your penalty and your punishment for engaging in interracial relationships. So um, it is very central to their worldview. I think one of the terms I've seen for those white women who engage in sexual intercourse with a black male is uh, mud sharks. That's what they'll call them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you do that a lot. Let's see the color at. Caller at nine four oh one nine four oh one. Did you have a question for Doctor Simi? Can I can you hear? Yes, ma'am. Hello. Okay. Um, my question is, um, Doctor Simi, uh, do you know why white people practice racism as supremacy? Uh, well, it's a great question. Um, you know, I think we've talked about some some of the reasons um, are that um, you know people receive psychological emotional, social, economic, um, political benefits from, I mean, the system, you know, as, as a whole. I think, uh, you know, individually people come to involvement in organized white supremacist groups for, for a lot of different reasons. There's no one, like, factor that leads someone to join one of these kind of groups. It, you know, it, it kind of ranges. Um, but but certainly the, the benefits that people derive are, are pretty pretty common across. And, and again, I think, um, you know, as a collective system in terms of how it gets reproduced over generation, I think you have to, to look at, at those factors. Uh, so I would say that's, that, that's probably primary. But, it is, you know, it is complicated, and, and I think there are a lot of different, you know, aspects to it. Um, so. um, my other question is, 
Um, what do you think it would take uh, for white people to stop practicing racism white supremacy? Well, that's a great question, too. Um, you know, the way I look at it is that you have the big system of white supremacy, and so that requires big solutions. So we need, for instance, I think, truth and reconciliation in terms of the United States, and that, you know, there has to be a, you know, a general consensus about our history and where we've been and how that continues to influence the current, you know, the status quo. So that, you know, that, that there's these kind of macro level kind of broad um, interventions that are required to disrupt the system. But then I think, you know, we also, you know, because those are difficult and, um, you know, <clears throat> while we need to strive for those, I think we also want to look at individual level um, factors as well. And how, how do you keep individuals from, you know, you may from getting involved in organized hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan and more contemporary groups. Uh, you see like Identity Europa, for example, or the Patriot Front or more recent groups uh, that appeal to younger folks. Um, so how do you keep people from getting involved in those groups? And, and that involves a whole set of different kinds of interventions that are more aimed at individuals. But I do think in general, um, we need much more emphasis, and, and this might seem contradictory, but mo much more emphasis early education, not because education necessarily is it's a problem of deficiency of education, but, but I do think we have a problem with our education system in terms of how we teach history, for example. I mean, I think we, we've done a real disservice to, to kids in our, in our public school system in terms of how, how we teach history. And we see a real kind of assault and have seen a real assault on our public education system in terms of funding, but also in terms of the curriculum. And so you have it at the state level, for instance, in Texas, there's been debates about how much emphasis should be placed on the role of slavery in terms of the Civil War versus teaching it as the Civil War is just about state states' state rights. Uh, using the term agricultural workers instead of slaves has, has been proposed. So when you have those kind of assaults on public education and really the truth, that you know that that I think requires a lot more uh, intervention in terms of you know I think education as far as teaching you know kind of a more accurate form of of educate you know of history, uh, but also more emotionally kind of attuned as well and in, in helping kids kind of understand uh, how history you know influence not just the past but continues to influence the present. So I think those are some things that, that would help. But it, again, these are you know very complicated problems. So I don't think there's any one single solution, certainly. Um, I'm listening to your response, right? And I, I, I hear you pivoting a lot back to like uh, KKK and like uh, racist, white supremacist groups, right? But from my understanding of the system, right, you have like regular lay people like teachers and nurses and people like that who are racist white supremacists, correct? Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I just use that as an example of the most kind of organized element of, of white supremacy. Uh, but it's not the only element. And that sometimes is a mistake. I think uh, people think that when we talk about white supremacy, we're only talking about the Ku Klux Klan. That's one element of white supremacy, but it, it's a much broader system. And it includes you know, laws, it includes real estate practices, it includes banking practices, you know, and it includes individuals engaged in, you know, who aren't part of any organized effort, 
but who practice white supremacy, like you said, teachers, um, law enforcement officers, you know, I mean, attorneys, judges, you know, you, you name it. Um, it, it cuts across. And so it is very deeply entrenched in, in that respect, which makes it even more difficult to, to unhinge as a system. And that's why I'm having a hard time, um, I guess, understanding how something like, I guess, knowing about Martin Luther King Jr. or Malcolm X or any, anything about black history would um, change how whites see black people or interact with them based on the, this, like, based on, more I know, um, the, super, the superior, superior ideology that they have of themselves and the superiority that they put on black people. I don't see how that would change. If they just know more well, about yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not suggesting. Yeah, I'm I'm thinking of something much more deep than just you know, um, you know, uh, learning about. I mean, obviously, I do think that's important, but but I think it's got to be a lot more than that. And I think it has to involve. I think as as your comment suggests, um, white people at an early age being. Um, help to consider issues of white identity and what that means and what it means to have a system um, of white supremacy, what it means to live in a society in a country founded on that and how that's influenced, you know, the development of that society and how it's benefited uh, white people collectively. I mean, I think these are the kinds of, when I, when I'm thinking of education, these are some of the things um, that I would also include, not just learning about uh, Dr. King. And I have a last question. I'm gonna, this is my last question. I promise that I'm going to hop off. Um, what does it mean to be white? If you could ask me that, please. And that's it. What does it, uh, let me make sure I understood correctly. What does it mean mm-hmm. to be white? Was that the question? Mm-hmm. When you say I'm a white person, what does that mean? What does it mean to be white? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, it means, I think, a lot of things. Um, some of what it means um, in, in this context in, in the United States it, it means to um, to have a, a degree of, you know, we talked about, you know, prerogative and entitlement. Um, you know, it means not having to explain to my son, who's now 21, how to interact with uh, police officers when he's pulled over. It means, you know, having all of, you know, it, it means being able to, to um, benefit from all these things that not even necessarily fully aware of. Um, so I, I think for me, when I think about, you know, what, what, what whiteness is in the context of the United States, I mean, that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. I mean, as a construct, you know, historically, um, it's something that's, uh, you know, changed over time and, and it's been used to, um, you know, generate, a power basis. And so, you know, being white also means being part of this you know, longer, larger historical context. Um, so for me, you know, as I came to realize this, um, you know, over time, beginning in childhood, um, it meant trying to figure out, are there ways to contest that? I, I'm still white. I still benefit from, from my whiteness, but, but are there things that I can do that in some ways at least uh, contest that. And so that's part of what being white also has meant for me. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of work. Context of white supremacy. Uh, Let's see. 
person caller in New Jersey. Caller in New Jersey, did you have a question for Doctor Simi? You should be with us. Yes. Um, how you doing? Um, you were speaking about um, sex, sex being a, a very um, big um, issue when it comes to uh, racism, white supremacy between white men and white women. Um, I want to ask you: Have you noticed the pattern um, in an area of uh, media? In the area of entertainment, there's a there's a promotion of white men and white women. Or I noticed on different commercials, whether on TV or on billboards, you'll see a white man with a um, racially mixed child. Do do you think that this is a this is deliberate when we see the that imagery? Uh, in the media and also at the same time of just kind of like, you know, the negative images of black men, but you see these very positive images of black, I mean, black women and white men in the media. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, you're, you say, so you feel like there's positive images of, of, um, interracial relationships when it's, um, when there's a black uh, female and a white male, is that is yes. I understand? Yes, yes. Okay. yes. I mean, there's, I've just noticed the pattern. There's, there's a lot uh, of uh, guess, shows with that, with, with that hmm. uh, make, make. Yeah, I guess I'd, yeah, I'd be curious to get some examples because I, I can't say that I've really noticed that so much. Um, uh, uh, you know, with black females and white males being kind of held out are encouraged in terms of imagery within media coverage. Um, yeah, I, that, that doesn't, yeah, I, I guess I just haven't seen that. Um, so no, maybe, if, maybe if, I'm sorry. Yeah. Maybe the scandal, uh, you have on the WB network, you have, uh, the flash, uh, white okay. main character and his fiance, black female. And, um, I don't know if you pay attention to, um, you know, just uh, the conversations on social media. There's there's a rift uh, that's instigated between black men and black women, where the discussion is that there are more educated black women that they are black men, and it's just this push to um, encourage black women to date white men. I don't I don't know if you're not haven't been paying attention to that trend. Yeah, no, I've seen that. Uh, although, from what I understand, the, the, as far as the figures are still pretty low in terms of black females, white males dating or marriage. Um, I, believe, I believe that's still pretty uncommon. Um, right. my, I may be missing that. but uh, So that is true. Why do you think it's being so heavily pushed on, um, on TV? Yeah, that's a yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, um, I don't know that I have. I'd have to think about that. It's a good question. I'm okay, to get back to you on that. No problem. I just have one more question. Um, how do you think um, during the you, know, um, you have the coronavirus? Even you go way back to um, Hurricane Katrina. Um, how do we deal with? the racism, white supremacy in the media, how they cover stories, um, yeah. how they, um, how they indict victims. 
They put victims yeah. on trial when they are <laughs> murdered uh, by a police officer or even a um, not not a like non-police officer. Um, just the coverage of um, white people um, gathering on beaches, funerals, compared to what you see in New York City, where black people who gather, they're met with violence and ridicule. Um, so how do we, how, how would you suggest we combat that um, bias in the media? Because the media, yeah. just like you pointed out with education, is a big part of um, upholding racism by supremacy. Yeah, no, it's so true. And the media, you know, has a major role in, in terms of perpetuating and producing and perpetuating, you know, this system of white supremacy. And so it's a it's a really important question. Um, it's a, it's <laughs> such a big problem. It's hard to know where to start with that. Um, you know, we we have lots of evidence of the biases. I mean, you know, we can go through that in terms of portrayals of criminality and so forth on how the media, um, you know, kind of stereotypes uh, blacks in particular as criminals. And, and, you know, that's obviously an old stereotype that's existed for a long time, but certainly the media amplifies that in a lot of different ways. Um, and we see it, you know, in, in Georgia with the video released about the, you know, prior to his murder, the, the, um, Aubrey's, um, contact with the police officers and, and, you know, the video gets released and the media is going to play it. And of course it's also widely available on social media. And so how do you, you know, counter that? Um, because I, you know, I think, and you know, I haven't talked to any about this, but my sense is that a lot of white people will see that video of the encounter with the police, you know, that happened sometime before his murder they'll look at oh, this kid was a thug, right? You know that, yeah, the father and son, you know, that they, they, they had, they had the right guy, right? That that video will kind of in some people's minds at least affirm that or confirm that. And, um, you know, so we just, you know, but the media is going to, you know, uh, play the videos. The media is going to cover things in certain ways. And so how do you undo, you know, in part because they're driven by, by ratings, they're driven by advertisements. Um, and, um, you know, so they have these built in, uh, incentives in a way to continue to perpetuate the system as it exists. Uh, and so, you know, really would require some major, I think, restructuring of the media. Um, and, um, it's hard to say where, where that starts. Um, I mean, part of it's alternative media and, and trying to build an infrastructure of alternative media that's not so um, centered and organized on, on um, the racist stereotypes and, and the system of white supremacy. So I think that's, you know, one place, you know, we, we have to support alternative media that, that um, is very conscious and intentional about not perpetuating those things. So that, that I would say that that'd be my first, you know, go-to would be to, to really figure out ways of trying to support alternative media. Context okay. of white Thanks supremacy, alternative media, invest, listener supported. Uh, let's see. Uh, our caller in Michigan. Oh man. They had so many really say, I think our guest number two minutes away, Marquise Treve joining us live from Brazil. Uh, I believe he actually resided in Michigan before he repatriated, and now he's in Brazil. 
Uh, it doesn't matter. It would be terrible either way. Or Detroit, Rio, bad for black people. Global system of white supremacy. Uh, speaking of global, before we get to our mommy in Michigan, uh, it says here, you are a member of the National Consortium in Studies of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism which is a university-based research center committed to the scientific study of the causes and consequences of terrorism in the United States and around the world. What exactly do you do as a member of START acronym and is white supremacy considered the number one agent, number one aspect of terrorism in the United States and the world that needs to be focused on? Yeah, great questions. Um, so START was uh, originally founded through a grant from the Department of Homeland Security as a what's called a center of excellence. There's a number of universities around the country that were designated by the Department of Homeland Security as such to study. In the case of University of Maryland, they were focused on you know the causes and consequences of terrorism and, and then developing you know sound uh, counterterrorism policies. Um, other Centers were focused on, you know, cybersecurity, for example, and different aspects that are relevant to the Department of Homeland Security's mission. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that's been interesting, you know, having been in the field since you know '96, really, is to see that in the, you know, that for a long time, for most of my career, white supremacist, you know, terrorism was not really on many people's radar screen. It was kind of you know, that, that studied terrorism, at least, you know, uh, it wasn't a major point of focus. It, the focus was elsewhere, and especially after 9-11, then terrorism became synonymous with Islamic extremism. And so it really dropped off uh, the radar screen. That started to change in the last couple of years, but we're, we're still very far behind. But we are starting to see the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security both really acknowledge that white supremacist extremism, you know, is a form of terrorism, that it's global um, that there, you know, there are ties that cut across uh, different different countries um, where these groups are are traveling back and forth, and they're coordinating their networking, of course, using computer technology uh, to facilitate these these contacts. Um, and um, it's you know a, a movement that's committed to violence, and we've seen that uh, all too often in the last couple of years with these shooting rampages and so forth. So we're starting to hear more of that in the last couple of years, but of course that's on um, you know, that's coming, you know, when we've had this type of violence, you know, throughout our country's history as really, you know, the Ku Klux Klan is the first, um, you know, domestic terrorism organization. And they essentially commit, you know, Klan-like organizations across the former Confederacy essentially fight a second civil war in many ways and, you know, certainly fight a guerrilla war that results in thousands of people murdered. And we saw, you know, uh, bombing campaigns, you know, across the South, Birmingham, nicknamed Bombingham, you know, in the 30s and 40s. Um, you know, and so we have such a long history of this type of terrorism, but it really just wasn't acknowledged and was, you know, kind of, um, there was a lot of denial around it. So I'm hopeful that the last couple of years what we're seeing, this, this more acknowledgement is, is going to continue, but, but we'll see. Hmm. Just making sure that I'm clear, so is that a no, uh, white supremacy is not the primary focus of the START program, grant-funded START program? No, it certainly, yeah, no, it hasn't been. I mean, I would say, um, you know, been, you know, more 
focused on Islamic extremism and terrorism related to Islamic extremism. Mm. Um, so, yeah. No, I mean, there, there are folks like, you know, that, you know, researchers like, you know, that, you know, have done more focus on domestic. That's the work I do as part of Start. Is it has been the work I've done has been focused on on white supremacist terrorism. But but in terms of overall, it's a big center, and so I would say there's definitely more more focus elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Dylan Roof, white saying, "Give the Rona to black people," and posting this online. Stephen Paddock out in Las Vegas, they couldn't even count how many weapons he had. And it's not, wow, we need to focus on white people. This is the terrorist. No, we got to find dark people. Uh, caller in Michigan. She should be good and warmed up now. Uh, did you have a question for Dr. Simi? You should be with us. Good evening, Jeff, and to the callers and listeners. Um, yep, I am in the one of the worst places for black people. In uh, Michigan, so goodness. Um, to your guest, um, as a white man, my question to you is: um, Who do you feel is most confused about racism, white supremacy, um, white people, or non-white people? Like who um, lack basic understanding for the most part of how the system works and what it is, in your opinion, and why? Hmm. That's a good question and tough one to answer. Uh, I think there's a lot of I don't know if I call it confusion. You know, it's it's hard to say what's confusion and what's denial, right? What's willful, intentional versus lack of awareness. And I think there's both with um, the white population. There's a lot of both with with the white population. So, um, and there's a lack of, I think, interest in wanting to know more uh, about this system of white supremacy. Uh, there's also a hostility to acknowledging that such a system exists. So then that's also present in some segment of the white population is that that hostility that refuses to even acknowledge uh, that we don't, we're not aware of it, we're not really informed about it, but it's just, how can you say such a system exists? That's crazy. That's fake news. That's propaganda, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's that element too. So I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to me that there's more, again, I just don't know if I'd use the word confusion, but there's certainly more um, um, lack of willingness to engage um, and discuss the system, it seems to me, among among the white population. Okay, and my second question um, is, uh, since there's no, like, master list of who is a racist and who isn't, but um, for the most part, is it safe to be suspicious of all white people since we wouldn't know who would be a racist? And um, do you have any tips for us on how to identify someone as a racist? Wow, that's a a powerful question. Um, And I've thought about that. Um, a lot over the years, um, but um, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I feel uncomfortable. Should you be suspicious of every white person you meet? I mean, um, that, that's a you know tough thing to say. Um, you know, but certainly, I guess I uh, 
advocate of healthy skepticism in general. So in, in that respect, you might say, you know, having healthy skepticism that um, you might be meeting somebody that's harboring um, some some aspects of racism and is, you know, um, good at concealing it because that is part of the the problem is that there's a lot of strategies to conceal racism, right? To, to um, prevent it from being publicly acknowledged, right? I think we're seeing more people get, which is also uh, very uh, concerning that we're seeing some segment of white people are getting much more comfortable being public about their racism, but I still think there's a lot of effort to conceal. And so as those strategies have been practiced over the years, you know, they, they've been um, pretty well, become fairly well oiled in some respects. And some, again, not all of this is completely conscious either. But so uh, being health, you know, healthy skepticism, I think is fair. Um, but again, I don't know that that's even for me to, to say, but, but it, it seems you're asking the question. So I, I will say that. Um, and as far as spotting it, I mean, are there signals? I mean, um, I mean, I think we know about microaggressions now. We're talking more about that. These more, in some cases, more subtle things. I mean, you know, in some cases where there's smoke, there's fire, right? That, you know, somebody who's engaging in microaggressions maybe is harboring even more, um, you know, more, more uh, stronger, more intense uh, feelings and thoughts regarding racism. So, you know, that that's, you know, you know, have you know, you know, people that, that I don't mean to interrupt you, but I'm yeah. sorry, but can you what do you mean by microaggressions? I just need a little more clarity on what you mean by that term. Yeah, I, I mean, it's really kind of these subtle forms of, of racism that's, you know, not uh, not necessarily uh, kind of overt, um, like real overt uh, forms of bias, but but a little more subtle, you know, kind of making com- little comments, little quips that would kind of um, maybe belittle, uh, belittle might even be too strong a word, but, but to some extent belittle a person in part because of um, their racial demographics. Uh, or, or it could be other, you know, they can be um, geared in other directions as well, not just race, but, but you know, that's what we're talking about. So, um, so they're just less, they're just much more subtle forms of racism. They're the types of subtle cues that you're, you may, in some cases, not even clear that it is, which is what makes it also hard to respond to because a person might, did I interpret that right? Was that what that person really meant? You know, kind of that type of thing. So, and, and I think some of those instances, people are, you know, they do misspeak and, and they do say something inadvertently. And so that does happen. But then other times somebody is kind of jabbing at you. And it is much more intentional, and they do it knowing consciously. And sometimes it's hard. Okay, to so I guess so. Those racist jokes probably would fall in that line, right? Well, I think the racist joke, certainly the one that Gus shared, uh, that would fall in the overt category in my <laughs> in my view. And so, mm-hmm. certainly most of the racist jokes I'm aware of and familiar with are are very overt. Uh, but uh, but yeah, sure there are types of racist humor that's much more subtle. And so that there, there certainly could be examples of those that would fall in the more subtle um, category. Okay. Well, thanks for taking my call and answer my question. I'll meet myself. It was nice talking with you. Let's see. Our caller. 
0750-0750. Did you have a question for Dr. Simi? Um, hello, all. I have one-on-one questions, so I just want to ask them and then mute myself to listen to the response. Um, my first question just continues from the previous caller's question. What is a white person in your studies and your research? What does it mean to be white in America? Because I first learned about whites as being wasps, white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestants in America, which was color, tribe, region, and religion. But now it seems a little bit like it's evolved or whatever, because I live in the part of the world where you have people who are categorized as Hispanic. They often look white to me. Um, I know that some Nazi families relocated to parts of South America and all over the world, but are now considered Hispanic or something else. Then there's this issue of like half foods or people who are like Syrian or Turkish. I don't understand. And I'm, I wonder in your research, what are these people considered and Jews as well? I, I heard you reference Jews earlier as being targets or victims, but I often see Jews and they seem white to me. They, they sometimes say that they're white and Jewish and Jewish is a religion. Um, it's not on the census. And then my, my second question is that given that it's a global system, is there anywhere on the planet where people who identify as white and benefit from racism would be satisfied and leave other groups alone? Meaning if by some, you know, some great feat, the majority of people who were non-white left the United States or left Europe or wherever, would white people be satisfied or would they continue to invade other spaces based on your research, the groups that you pay attention to and what they say openly? And then my last question is, do you believe that racism will end in America or do you believe that the people you've researched indicate that they'd rather see America end before they end racism? That is, are they more willing to destroy the world and themselves in in order to be able to practice racism and i know that's a lot but those are my questions and i'm just gonna mute my line and listen to the response thank you okay yeah thank you for those questions and and the first one i'm I'm glad have a second shot i took the first time it was asked in kind of a more personal way i guess but but i think your question helps me uh, clarify that you know sociologically speaking what are we talking about when we say white the white race uh, and in, in particular, how is it framed by the white supremacist movement, which is really uh, a kind of an interesting question because, you know, for a movement that's based on certainty, I mean, they, 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 this is a movement that likes things very cut and dry, very low tolerance for ambiguity, right? That the gray area doesn't work for these folks or for this movement, right? And yet, what is whiteness ends up being very contested within the movement. They, they will try and make declarations about here are the members of the Aryan nations. You know, and they'll have these countries are in, these countries are out. And then they have the bloodlines. And they, but on the ground level, there's a lot of uh, disputes, conflicts that arise about who's white and who's not. And so what seems like should be a cut and dry issue for these folks is actually quite, quite, quite the opposite. And they actually even will, you know, get into, you know, arguments with each other about, you know, you're not white enough or I'm more white than you. And so there's a lot of kind of uh, people trying to one-up each other over who's more white. And then they even kick people out if they believe that somebody's not white enough. So then that happens. 
and they, you know, this is over time at various points in time happened in terms of uh, groups that have made purges based on, on these kinds of issues. Um, and, and we even do have cases of individuals who have become members of these groups that are not um, what, what the, the movement would consider to be white. So, for instance, there was a, an individual who was biracial, Leo Felton, in the uh, like early 2000s. He was actually wanted by the FBI on the uh, 10 most wanted list, and he was a neo-Nazi, but his uh, father was black and mother was white, and uh, he ended up getting involved in the movement. So even you have cases like that that happen. Um, so, again, what, what should be, um, based on the ideology, something real clear cut is actually not. And I think what that speaks to is the, the reality that race is very complex. It's multidimensional. It's situational. It, it, there's lots of variances, um, in terms of, you know, what we call the, you know, we have these, you know, on the Census Bureau, as you mentioned, we have these categories that in people check boxes, but, but in reality, race is, is far more complicated than, you know, boxes that you can check. So that it becomes a, a very <clears throat> kind of um, interesting thing to look at within the movement in terms of how they end up trying to define uh, this issue about what is whiteness. Um, the um, a third question I'll, I'll go to, and then maybe I can get a refresher on, on the second one. That the you know, as far as you know, I, 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 I oh, the uh, let me go to the second one just so I keep them in order. But the global uh, issue, um, I, I think. You know that scenario that you ask about. They, they because of the way the ideology is, is structured, it, it's based to a large extent on exploitation, oppression, and domination. So some someone would have to be the outgroup. So if some magical scenario could be created, I think then they would have to invent some type of outgroup that they could exploit and oppress because that's what the, the system that they they base their ideology on is, is about is about exploitation it's about oppression so so i think if that scenario came to fruition where they were able to to get that 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 someone would would you know they would they would uh you know create a new group uh, a new out group um and then as far as you know whether is it possible to imagine you know uh racism um a resolution to racism in, in, in America. You know, I'm sorry. I, I just, um, you know, as much as I try to be optimistic, I, you know, I really, I, we're so far from that. It's hard to, to imagine uh, for me personally. Much obliged. Uh, see, I think we nabbed all of our callers. Uh, I will get in my last question before we get ready for, Marquise Treve joining us live from Brazil. The timing. President Trump might not even allow him to come back to Michigan. Not that he'd want to go there anytime soon. Uh, I guess my my last question, um, Dr. Simi, at least on this broadcast, uh, I do not uh, disaggregate. Meaning when I talk about the system of racism, white supremacy, I do not make a uh, distinction between the 52% of white women voters who supported Donald Trump, uh, and I suspect it'll probably be about the same margin again for more years. Uh, I don't make a distinction between them and Dylan Storm Roof, uh, who incidentally in his manifesto said, direct quote, I consider myself 
very well versed in racism. He didn't say he was concealing. He didn't say he was confused. Very well versed. And in fact, he had visited several uh, slave plantation museums in South Carolina. So, I mean, he had done his homework. He's not ignorant. Uh, I don't make a distinction between he, uh, the 52% of white women voters, uh, the folks that are a part of the Patriot Front that are preparing for the Boogaloo, or the white teachers, white female teachers that were mentioned previously who are super overrepresented in the public school system who would have to be at the center of what they call the school to prison pipeline. I don't disaggregate. All of that is the system of white supremacy. You just have different manifestations of the same thing. And in my view, I think that is a part of the problem when people say white supremacy and it just gets isolated to the skinheads or the Patriot front or the Klan. And they do not think of the 52% of the white women voters who voted for Trump or the white teachers, white female teachers who have to be at the center of why so many young black boys and girls end up in greater confinement. Uh, what are your thoughts, Dr. Semi? No, I think that's right on target. We do a disservice by separating these things out into different buckets. I, I like the idea of talking about a system that's interlocking, right? It's interconnected. People play different roles. They, there's different functions uh, that white supremacy provides, and people get different benefits from it. You know, it doesn't all work exactly the same for each and every person that's part of the system. And so, yeah, it looks different. You do have some segments of the system that have white sheets or shaved heads or, you know, khakis and polos. Uh, and other system, you know, other segments of the system uh, are deeply you know, involved in um, institutional practices that perpetuate white supremacy. And if you ask them about the folks over, you know, here on this other part of the system, like the members of the Klan groups or neo-Nazis, they would be aghast and say, oh, those people are horrific. They're terrible. I don't want anything to do with them in some cases. Uh, and, and because they don't see how, though, that they're participating in that same system and that they're mutually helping perpetuate this system of white supremacy. We have been chatting it up with Dr. Peter Semi. Uh, he is the author, co-author of American Swastika Inside the White Power Movement's Hidden Spaces of Hate by Peter Semi. Although I was even that like hidden spaces like... <laughs> It's difficult for me to even think of white supremacy as hidden when the president of the United States comes out on a regular basis and says, we've got the Chinese virus, China, the way he pronounces it. And I mean, it seems like a long list uh, of things I could point to having slave owners on the front of the money. I mean, it's a lot of things I could point to and say, wow, it doesn't seem like white supremacy if you want to you know support white people and and disparage black people that seems like it is welcome all day every day all around the world like uh sometimes you'll even be rewarded for you know mistreating another black person like those those white fellas that killed Ahmad Arbery were they in hiding were they like you know on a boat somewhere on a hidden island someplace like fearing that they were going to be deported did that happen you know, the only some spaces are hidden. Certainly, um, you're, you're, you know, uh, very correct to point out that uh, plenty of 
white supremacy is very public and very overt and out in the open. And, um, uh, you know, just, it's, you know, some segments, there are some private aspects, but there are also plenty of public aspects. Again, the problem though becomes is that so often these things we don't see as manifestations of white supremacy. You know, we're, we're still in this debate um, uh, about the laundry list of things that President Trump has done. And, and is he, you know, what's in his heart and mind? Is he really a racist? Is he not? I hear commentators, you know, many of them might respect, but they're still, you know, they're hedging their bets. And, you know, it's like we're still not sure if we're at this threshold, whether he's, you know, kind of uh, past the threshold where we can say, you know, he's a white supremacist, that he's practicing white supremacy. Um, so even that, you know, it's crazy as it seems because it seems to me that there's no no doubt based on the evidence but we're still having debates about that and so many people don't see statutes of confederate um uh, officers soldiers as you know manifestations of of white supremacy and yet that also seems so clear um so sometimes what uh seems clear you know for for others um you know they they seem to have a hard time seeing it. Now, of course, I, I would agree, though, that some folks who, who don't see it, it that's very intentional. Or, or they do see it, and they're proud of it. So, you know, I mean, I think there are different responses here, and all of this, I think, helps the system perpetuate itself because it does, it, it raises enough questions about whether, you know, this is, you know, an example or not. And uh, it helps continue this kind of diversionary tactics of sorts. You're just saying just buckets and buckets of words. I would say more, but we have Marquise Trevay waiting in the hopper uh, program two of two live from Brazil. So excited, man, oh, man. But. I was super excited for program one as well. Hopefully folks got constructive uh, information. Perhaps we can check in uh, with, I don't know about the virus. We might be on lockdown. So maybe we can check in again and do more. I had even notes from American swastika and I didn't even get to go over my notes. Uh, much obliged uh, professor Chapman, doctor, excuse me, Dr. Simi for hanging out, spending some of your Tuesday evening with us could have been doing other cool things in California. Uh, be careful with the protesters down there. Uh, hope things reopen in California safely. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can check in with you again down the road. Take good care. Dr. Simi. Yeah, like you do the same context of white supremacy. Ah, we would normally do our check-in and you know, what did folks think and blah, 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 or could have got in the last question or two, but we have another guest. So the way that this will go uh, to make it easier on me, as opposed to having this as one big uh, podcast, we're going to break this. And so this will be two. Now in the past, I would have just disconnected the podcast and made everybody dial back in, but we will not do it that way. But just for the podcast purposes, this is going to be broken. So this is the end of podcast one. We will go right to podcast two. Uh, maybe we'll make time after Mr. Marquise Trevay leaves and we can say a word about Dr. Simi. We'll have to see. I know it's getting late on the East Coast, but we are pivoting right now. So podcast one, Dr. Simi, hope it was constructive, pivoting immediately on our counter-racist grind to Marquise Trevay live in Brazil. Give me one second. I'll do a commercial as we pivot to broadcast number two. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. 
a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.